1: Look at up. Listen, I'm watching
0: CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful. You know? It's uh, Pepe's become
3: kind of a symbol.
0: Welcome to Yer Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And we're joined today by Hannah Gaze, a senior researcher at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Thanks for joining us, Hannah.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: I guess just to begin with, the Southern Poverty Law Center sort of looms large in the right-wing imagination up there with Antifa and the Bill Gates Foundation as this sort of uh, boogeyman. Could you tell us a bit about the SPLC and what it's like to work in the belly of the beast?
1: (laughs) Yeah, sure. So the Southern Poverty Law Center is a Yes. As you said, we get a lot of attention, to put it one way. The team that I work on is called the Intelligence Project, and we track basically a variety of different ideologies and hate groups. In particular, what I mostly focus on are white supremacist groups broadly, but we track a number of different ideologies, including anti-LGBTQ, anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant, etc.
0: And how, how did you come to work at the SPLC? So
1: I... Actually, I've only been here for about a year, but previously I was at Harvard Divinity School, focused on Russian nationalism and religion. And I've also been writing about extremism going on a couple of years now. I started writing about the so called alt right back in 2016, back basically sort of b- before a lot of the figures in that movement became a household name. And I think really before a lot of us sort of assumed that it would become such a massive and prominent movement.
0: Well, maybe we can circle back around to Russian nationalism later, because I'm sure we've got a lot of questions about Dugan. (laughs) But just before that, you wrote some pieces a little while ago that I thought were really interesting about how fascist ideas sort of get laundered into mainstream conservative discourse. Could you speak a little bit about what you found when you looked into that?
1: So I think this is definitely something we saw in... 2016. We saw this a lot. Basically, the couple of pieces that I've worked on looked at a number of different figureheads within the movement, one of whom is a man named Kevin Deanna, who is one of the most prominent white nationalist propagandists who basically operated under a pseudonym for years. And another piece also looked at a couple of figures who had ties to the Daily Caller, which is a conservative publication in the US that has for whatever reason, had a number of uh, secret white nationalists on staff. Many of these figures would, at the Daily Caller particularly, basically would try and squeeze in some of their ideas into the publication, whether that would be trying to create favorable coverage for the alt-right or white nationalists more broadly, or they would also basically just try and launder talking points. So particularly talking points focused on immigration Talking points, kind of maybe may focused on more international topics, etc.
0: The Daily Caller—that's associated with Tucker Carlson—is that right?
1: Yeah. So he's no longer—he—he he was one of the founders. He's no longer at the publication, but I mean, that's definitely—it was definitely very much his baby for years.
3: When you say that some of these ideas and figures have been squeezed into the discourse, it seems that the the gap that's been made available to them to do so has widened in recent years. And I wonder to what extent do you think this is attributable to the fact that the uh, Republican Party has become, perhaps as a result of the intervention of the Tea Party, quite a a radical or extreme party in some ways. So what do you have to say about the the kind of relationship between these figures, these ideas, the emergence of the alt-right and the Republican Party in particular?
1: It's really interesting because it's actually a It's a very complex relationship in some respects. So one of the figures I mentioned, Kevin Deanna, wrote a—one of the pieces he's best known for was a piece basically on how to destroy the Republican Party. Because in many respects, people like him and people within the white nationalist movement do see the party as their enemy— But it's also something that they're aiming to subvert and destroy from the inside. And this is essentially why they end up at some of these conservative institutions is because they see them as opportunities. And it's resulted in this kind of complex relationship between the two because on the one hand, obviously, there's some very clear ties to some of the rhetoric being pushed by white nationalists and also some of the rhetoric being pushed by the party right now, especially under Trump. But on the other hand there's this there's always going to be this tension between the two that they the white nationalists will always see the party as their enemy. They'll also express frustration when they do get kicked out of conservative circles, which I mean has happened with the daily caller where they distance themselves from some of these figures after they've been outed but i I think it's I think it's safe to say that definitely the radicalization and some of the kind of grassroots stuff that We saw because the Tea Party has played a significant role, but there's always going to be this tension between the two.
3: Are you familiar also with figures like uh, Lauren Southern? um, And I ask because she's recently relocated to Australia and I guess in some respects is is seeking to recraft her public image so that she has greater access to mainstream media.
1: Yeah. And... She's definitely interesting, too, because she really bridges this gap between what, we, what we've what started to see in terms of these communities on YouTube or even on basically other video apps where there are these kind of niche figures who can develop a massive audience. And she's definitely done that with her documentaries. But yeah, I mean, she she disappeared for a little bit and then has come back. She's working on a new documentary. I know about it's basically connected to the protests that have been going on in the US recently and also it seemed to be broadly focused on quote unquote anti cop rhetoric. <laughs> she released the she released a trailer for it somewhat recently. I mean she's definitely interesting too because she also has this very international presence. She has ties to Europe because one of her co collaborators, Brittany Pettibone, who's this other prominent YouTube YouTuber who has done projects with Lauren in the past, I mean, Pettibone is married to Martin Selner, and Selner plays a major role in the so-called identitarian movement over there. And he was also has extreme connections, too. We know that he was in contact with a white supremacist terrorist who carried out a terror attack in New Zealand. But, so, yeah, I mean, she's, she's a good example, I think, of someone who really is trying to put this softer face on these really, really extreme ideas.
0: Did you read the uh, feature on her in The Atlantic that came out this past weekend?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: I was wondering what you made of it. I saw a mixed reaction I think from people who thought it was a little bit softball, but I guess other people thought it sort of suddenly showed her up to for at least dating one loser
1: <laughs> yeah her her i guess it's i can't i, I wasn't sure if it was her ex boyfriend or it's her the boyfriend referenced in there was her is now her husband, but the guy th- who wouldn't eat ketchup
0: <laughs> yeah i think I think it was the ex that wouldn't eat ketchup because it was Asian.
1: Yeah, which actually I did not know that the origins <laughs> of Ketchup were in Asia. I mostly associate Ketchup with Pittsburgh and also Ronald Reagan. So <laughs> Yeah. Uh but I, I like the I like the piece. I think it did a really good job actually of just kind of showing that she's had this complex role in the movement and also that the truth of the matter too is also that women who are involved in the white nationalist movement do experience a lot of harassment, and basically just from their male peers. And I think that's actually kind of an important thing to talk about when we're talking about white supremacy, because ultimately it really does point to the root of the movement in misogyny too. But broadly, I thought it was really interesting. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff about basically the role that some of her films have played, just in terms of how they've had an effect in terms of shaping how the right talks about ter- certain issues, thinking specifically of farmlands or documentary on South Africa. That was my takeaway from it.
3: There's um, often debate when these sorts of uh, accounts are published about the ethics of uh, journalists writing about these figures and these subjects. And one argument is that uh, they should not be written about or written about only in a, a limited sense, because what uh, these figures are desiring is publicity. And uh, on the basis that there's no such thing as bad publicity, any kind of reportage is welcome. So I wonder, in your own reportage, how do you tackle these kinds of issues where you're wanting to report on what's going on, but at the same time, you don't want to necessarily or unnecessarily boost their prominence?
1: It's difficult. And I think it's also one of those situations where in some cases, There's really no easy answer. We can come up with guidelines. And I know everyone who works on this beat does have guidelines in terms of what we do and don't write about and obviously how we, when we think something should be written about and what's considered platforming. For me, I guess the biggest consideration is, especially with smaller groups that haven't gotten a lot of attention, is the way that we're reporting on this. Even if it does mean that that group is going to get more attention, Their name is going to be out in the open to more people. Is the reporting that we're doing going to hurt them in some way and basically have an impact, a negative impact on the group? I think if the answer is yes, I think that's basically a clear go ahead that you can cover something. Those two factors can kind of exist together. And sometimes it's actually just important to get the name of a member of the movement or the name of a new group out there because you're basically shining light in the shadows. I really think broadly there is no easy answer, but ultimately it really does come down to you really want to just be thinking about how you're covering, constantly be thinking about how you're covering something, why you're choosing to cover it, and have an answer for that.
3: And how do you go about, I guess, assessing the impact of your reportage? And I'm thinking also in the context of the SPLC, because it's dedicated well, much of its activity is dedicated to documenting these movements and ideas. I know you can't speak for the SPLC, but how do institutions like that also, I guess, approach assessing the impact of their work?
1: It's kind of of hard because also things have changed so much in recent years too. It used to be that sometimes you could really tell if a piece specifically had an effect because you would just get a lot of people yelling at you on Twitter. (laughs) Now that's actually, uh, I've published things. I've published a big and splinter uh, on two figures who had essentially infiltrated D.C. conservative circles who were tied to white nationalists. And it was just it got a lot of like mainstream attention. But in terms of hearing anything from the movement, it was very quiet in terms of <laughs> public reactions. So it, it's difficult. I mean, I think with the SPLC, since we also do so much legal work, too, that that's definitely one way to track it, and bas- basically, if those if lawsuits are impacting a group, obviously that's going to be a very clear sign that you're having an effect. In ter- but in terms of reporting, yeah, I think it's it can be difficult to say because often maybe one of the reactions will be infighting within that group, but you might not necessarily know about it at the time.
0: In terms of uh, these ideas being laundered into the mainstream, I guess we've seen also in recent times that whole process sort of being uh, sidestepped by the fact that the president is occasionally just retweeting uh, white nationalists. What's the impact of that?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's really difficult. And it's also it's put Twitter and Facebook and just kind of social media platforms broadly into this really weird space because it's on the one hand, it's the president. On the other hand, the president is platforming all the like these various people that Twitter, Facebook, all their guidelines essentially say some of these people should be banned or the speech that is included in some of these posts should be banned. I mean, he's definitely amplified a number of extremist voice in the past as has members of his family. I'm thinking specifically of Donald Trump Jr. Most recent example was he retweeted something from Prager University that included a video from British neo-Nazi Mark Collette. And... Then there's also with Trump, too, a couple of weeks ago, like several weeks ago, him retweeting that video of someone shouting white power. It's hard to say, kind of, I don't really honestly know what Twitter should do in that case, but it, it, it really has had this effect, I think, in terms of just making the speech seem more allowable. Because if the president is, is able to get away with boosting some of this rhetoric, then what does that say for the groups on this platform? So we'll see. Yeah, I mean, we'll see also what happens after the election in terms of his Twitter account. Twitter has said that they will take more action if he's out of office, but who knows?
0: You are listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're talking to Hannah Gase about the far right. Uh, So maybe circling back around to Russia, as long as we're talking about Uh, Russia's top agent in the United States. One of your areas of expertise is Russia. And when we've talked to people about Russia before, one of our previous guests was happy to answer questions about Dugan, but I did notice that afterwards uh, when someone asked them about it, they said they asked a lot of questions about Dugan. Why do you think it is that Dugan has an outsized prominence in discussions about Russia and white nationalism that maybe he doesn't deserve?
1: So I think the short answer is that he's one of the few, well, A, he writes a lot. I th- the the thing with dugan is that he just prolifically publishes and he also prolifically publishes in english a lot there are a number of prominent white nationalist figures who don't write in english so basically it, it a lot of this ends up turning to dugan because it's just readily accessible but he's also i mean he's interesting because really he's sort of an odd connection to have to the white nationalist movement i mean so he's just to basically do a brief summary of kind of how he ended up with these ties to Europeans and Americans. He's this neo-Eurasianist thinker and ultranationalist. He got his start in politics in the late Soviet Union with a group called Pamyat. And after, basically, after he left Pamyat, he started to try and build connections with the European new right. And the fact that he did speak English, they so he could write in English and other languages also helped but he's just really been boosted so much because of this and it's odd because eurasianism as an ideology doesn't exactly fit easily with a lot of white nationalist or neo-nazi talking points and he's also not necessary. there are a lot of tensions in terms of him and other russian neo-nazi or russian neo-nazi groups because basically eurasianism is a little more friendly to islam it kind of sees things in the more civilizational perspective, not race, or like explicitly race. And it's just this very odd connection. So I think the the biggest reason why he's so prominent is basically because he's sort of made himself that way. And he's been perfectly happy for outlets like Arctos, which is a white nationalist publishing house based in Hungary. And he, he's been perfectly happy to have his work translated by them, have... Basically, work closely with other translators who have connections to the movement, and but still, he's also even critical of white nationalism to a certain extent. Yeah, it's a it's a very odd relationship, I think, to say the least.
3: Would uh, someone like Richard Spencer be a, a U.S. equivalent to Dugan, or are there others that are you know more prominent, or do you think will become more prominent?
1: That's a good question. I'm actually not really sure what the American equivalent would be yeah I don't know honestly I mean maybe Richard Spencer but it's it's hard to say I think it part of it too is just Dugan has had such a long running history within ultranationalist movements in Russia I and mean, we just haven't seen the same extent of work I think from like. Someone like Richard Spencer, who has obviously been prominent for years, but like not going back to the 1980s. So, yeah, I think it's hard to say.
3: Dugan advances uh, thesis about Eurasianism, and certainly in Australia and I expect the US, there's been a shift in some forms of rhetoric on the extreme right away from uh, talking about um, white nationalism as such and more towards. Speaking of uh, civilizationism and you know, recasting the terms of the debate. What do you think is going on in that respect, and how has the alt right and its satellites kind of adopted language? over uh, the past few years and especially I guess under Trump because we've also seen the emergence of groups like the Proud Boys who disavow the the racist label claim they're not white nationalist but are very much about defending western civilization. So what do you think is this kind of the role this idea of western civilization And has it become just a a substitute for, uh, I guess, white supremacy?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, they're inevitably intertwined. Basically, the markers of Western civilization are often markers of whiteness, even though they're not necessarily... The figures who are promoting these ideas aren't aren't necessarily always white. But the way that they describe Western civilization is essentially a Western-European in origin, and I think a lot of it really does go back to sort of this idea of mainstreaming to a certain extent. I think it's a it's a way of them appealing to a broader audience. Obviously, some very extreme figures will use this rhetoric to kind of launder their ideas into the mainstream and kind of present them as showing something that's softer that is kind of connected to hunt- more Hunt and rhetoric around civilizations, as opposed to race specifically. But then obviously, I mean, you have other groups that aren't necessarily pushing that same white nationalist agenda, but they're still using Western civilization as kind of a proxy. But really, yeah, at the end of the day, I think it really does go back to the fact that they are talking about Western Europe when they are talking about Western civilization. And those markers of Western European culture are basically what a lot of these extreme groups have kind of claimed to be markers of whiteness.
3: Speaking of, uh, I guess, civilizational clashes, this thing called the War on Terror has been going on for about 20 years. And I've noticed that on social media, there's now photographs appearing of returned veterans from the war in Afghanistan now proudly sending their sons off to that same war and so on. In a kind of uh, longer historical view, what do you think has been the impact of the war on terror and, and in what way, if any, do you think it's facilitated the uh, emergence of, or re-emergence of these kinds of ideas that we associate with um, the extreme right?
1: I mean, it's definitely had a profound impact. Uh, Catherine Bellew's book really, uh, I think, is kind of helpful on, the, on this front, bring the war home. Basically, that like wars do have a strong impact in sort of what we see in terms of this uptick of that extremist activity. And yeah, as you, as you said, too, this kind of class, clash of civilizations rhetoric that arose during the Bush years really was empowering, I think, for a lot of these groups, because a means of saying like, it, it, it's basically a green light for sort of promoting some of these hateful ideas because, well, it was essentially coming from the top, from the top, from the elites, that this sort of rhetoric about the Middle East was okay. And that because we're at war, a lot of this was more allowable. And that's sort of just continued. I think if you really look at sort of the resurgence of the movement that we're seeing today, I think, yeah, it's definitely impacted, has been impacted and is intimately tied to the events that happened after 9-11.
0: You also recently uh, wrote a piece about Russia and the end of the Soviet Union and this sort of strange embrace of the supernatural that occurred as the Soviet Empire began to crumble. Could you speak a little bit about that? And I guess also we're seeing a embrace of the supernatural and the like in the united states at the moment and do you think that's indicative of a similar crumbling of empire
1: i think it definitely is and i know i was not the only one who has a background in kind of soviet studies or russian studies to notice that the lack of toilet paper in the united states and other supplies right when covid hit that there are very some very clear parallels to uh <laughs> <glass-nosed>. <laughs> uh that was definitely being pointed out on twitter a lot but yeah i mean Thankfully, to my knowledge, no one has been sticking glasses of water next to their TVs uh, to capture energies like they were during Perestroika and Glasnost in parts of Russia. But uh, I think it's, it's definitely connected. I mean, I think what we're seeing is so much uncertainty, and people are just really looking for answers, and that was sort of what was happening then, too, and that was... The, that was my point on the baffler piece is like when there's so much uncertainty and chaos around and also it's there there's sort of an epistemic crisis too on top of it just in terms of some of the i guess what you would call quote-unquote fake news or whatever all of that combined really does make it easy for these ideas to push into the mainstream now i i that's not to say that we have psychics on state TV yet, but I guess that would be at least be a entertaining version of that playing out.
3: <laughs> There's plenty of political astrologers on uh, US TV, surely?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I guess we'll just have to wait and see if um, someone tries to do like energy healing on CNN. But I'm not, I'm not holding my out hope that that's going to happen.
0: Well, on that note, uh, we're going to have to leave it there for the radio. But we will have a few more questions on the podcast version of this show, which you can find at threecr.org.au/slash or on Apple or Spotify. Maybe getting back to the laundering of white nationalist talking points, what do you make of characters like Andy Neo and uh, publications like Phrenology Weekly? or Quillette, Sorry.
1: Andy Neo is interesting because he, I, I did a piece last year looking at sort of the origins of basically just how his work came about and how he became this figure on the American political scene. And he's interesting because he's very much like tailored to this quick hit, kind of twitter heavy media landscape that's highly polarized he's especially over the past several months he's just been covering protests and just anti-fascists just constantly doing things like publishing photos of mugshot basically basically people's mugshots after they get arrested and just creating these just really vicious and inaccurate Summary of what's happening in the U.S. and what leftists are doing. It's been tremendously effective, I think. And I actually, I back in 2019, I thought, I sort of thought after he left Quillette that he, his platform would kind of die down a bit. I mean, he's was he's connected to the Post Millennial, um, which is this Canadian publication that put puts out a lot of like hyper conservative, weird news. But it didn't seem like nearly as prominent of a platform but the past couple of months especially and with everything that's going on in portland it has really just served as a way for him to kind of just continue this cycle that he he was on he was on since like, for years really but yeah i mean his big thing has basically just been covering protests in this extremely one-sided way that's very favorable to the right favorable to extremist groups like patriot prayer and the proud boys and it gets a lot of attention.
0: How is he sort of received by those groups? I understand, obviously, they appreciate the positive coverage, but I guess like Lauren Southern, he does have a sort of uh, demographic problem f- where from where they're coming from.
1: Yeah, it's it's strange. I mean, the Proud, uh, the Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer basically, I mean, have cited him as a reason why they were having some of these rallies in Portland. Uh, after he got attacked with a milkshake in 2019 so it's strange because like he has tried to essentially say i have no connection to these groups etc but at the point where they're citing the fact that he was allegedly attacked by anti-fascist activists in portland as a reason for having these protests in portland it's a very strange connection but yeah, I mean, with with the Proud Boys and like some of these other groups that are basically citing him and using his content at times, they, I mean, they do have non-white members. So I think the demographic aspect, as you pointed out, I think is probably less of a problem.
3: Uh, one question that occurs to me, especially in this context, in relation to figures like Andy, but also publications like amateur phrenology and so on, is there's a sense in which and this is the subject of reporting by the SPLC and and others, of course, there's an attempt to come to grips with what's the sources of financing for these sorts of publications and who are the, you know, which particular US billionaire is is bankrolling it. At the same time, there's a kind of or what's been created or perhaps what's trying to be created is a popular market. So Andy's, you know, and, and I'm just, you know, there are other equivalent figures, but Uh, There's financial backing for this sort of uh, propaganda. At the same time, there's there's a market for it. So what do you understand to be the kind of, I guess, the political economy of extreme rights propaganda?
1: It's tricky. I mean, well, I I think one thing that's interesting too is also a lot of these sites that are kind of basically Quillette. I, I mean, also who knows what? Kind of budget they need to operate, and it's possible that they have some kind of larger, fa- larger kind of donation hub. But it's tricky. A lot of them tend to be pretty lean operations. The Jared Holt recently did a series on the post millennial, and basically, it seemed that one of the ways that they were essentially functioning was that they just weren't paying people really at much at all. I think one person cited that they got five dollars for a piece, uh, <laughs> which is <laughs> Not great to say the least. So it's hard to say. I mean, yeah.
3: Often it seems to be the case that someone will tweet something, a story will appear on, uh, you know, the millennial or whatever it is. And then it will quite quickly be uh, adopted by other more prominent figures. And within the space of 24 hours or less, uh, there'll be a story on fox news or something is that how it kind of this ecosystem functions
1: yeah and it's i think i think a lot of it isn't necessarily that there's a direct connection per se but it just they essentially feed into each other and you sort of see this feedback loop i was actually reading a study earlier today that was talking about one of the ways that these sites work and Part of the reason why some of these right-wing websites will get so extreme in terms of some of the content that they're publishing is because there's this competition between the different sites. So when you're competing for attention, uh, one way to do that is basically by creating more extreme content and more salacious content. So that's definitely one aspect of it.
3: Talia Levins recently published a book. Uh, exploring her investigations into the uh, extreme riot in the United States and elsewhere, and I guess argues to, that, uh, you know, these forces need to be confronted quite directly where possible. At the same time, figures like Andy Ngo, as you've, you've indicated, uh, focus or tend to focus almost exclusively on the, the street clashes that take place and use that material in their kind of propaganda so what do you think, I mean, leaving aside your, I guess, um, you know, commitment to, to journalism, what's going on, I guess, politically in terms of the the clashes that have been going on in the streets in the United States and also, by extension, what, what's been the impact of the emergence of something like uh, Black Lives Matter on the extreme right and its capacity to be... Absorbed into the mainstream.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I think basically the extreme right has seen this as a, just an opportunity to create a boogeyman. And create a boogeyman that they claim is basically just a communist threat in so many words. And it's hard because a lot of the violence that we're seeing, and specifically property damage too, I mean, it's basically just... You're just seeing anger boil over. The past especially the past four years have been so much and all of this basically happening then during a massive pandemic and essentially the government is failing us and we're seeing that play out, I think.
0: Just to wrap up, we've talked a bit about uh, you know, different pipelines on the show today, but I guess we have sort of been dancing around the most important one, the Chapo to Fash pipeline. No, I'm just joking. That's not my question. Um, <laughs> just, just finally, how do you think the elections going to play out?
1: Oh, uh, I don't know. I, <laughs> um, it's actually do you,
0: do you wish I'd ask the Chapo de fish on there? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's actually it's actually funny that you you mentioned Chapo because on twenty in 2016 on election night, I was actually at there. Basically, when they were um, doing election coverage. I was there and was in the room basically when every just the tone just started to shift to, oh my God, Hillary, Hillary Clinton is not winning. It's actually going to be Trump. <laughs> um, yeah, so all that to say, I, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I think like so many other people, I was really optimistic in 2016 that Trump would not win. <laughs> and uh, election night, was a bit difficult to say the least so we'll see i i i don't know after 2016 i i want to say i trust polls and i kind of trust some of the election predictions that we're seeing but i don't really know
0: well on that ambiguous note we'll leave it there (laughs) thanks very much for joining us hannah
1: thank you for having me
0: social change library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. During October, the Commons Library is running a crowdfunder to help keep its collection updated and free to the public. To make a tax-deductible donation, visit www.commonslibrary.org. The Commons Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter.